0: to have a a lot of you back again this week after last week. I I guess that means I didn't scare you away. Um, We were talking last week, I looked at, my title last week was Dystopian Fiction and Film, Human Nature Revealed. Dystopian Fiction and Film, Human Nature Revealed. And how many of us, after last week or on our own, have a sense of what I mean when I say dystopian fiction or film. Do you know what I'm talking about? So, um, you know, Anything dystopian is a bad place. It's not right. Something is not right in the world and what we see in dystopian I'm going to hang on to it for now. I'll give it to you. Sorry. <laughs> um, whenever we see a dystopian um, book or a dystopian film we're looking toward the future. They're, they're very often futuristic and post-apocalyptic. Um, and so one of the things I sort of looked at, took a general look at what is dystopia last week, and this week I'm going to zero in on one particular series of dystopian books that have taken the young adults, by Storm, Um, and then next week we're going to look at another one, and then the third week we're going to look at a third series of books. The first series of books that we're looking at today is the Divergent Trilogy by Veronica Roth, and there's been a film made of the first book called Divergent. Um, that came out in March. It's not yet on DVD, but I'll be talking about that. Next week we'll look at The Hunger Games, and then the week after that we'll look at The Giver and the books in that series. The Giver is a book written for um, younger-aged children and teens. Um, It's a little bit of a different reading level, but you'll have to ask me, I appreciate the challenge, Deborah. why are we looking at such dark material Why is such dark material so um, attractive to our youth? Why is it so popular right now, not just to our youth, but to our society in general? And what does the Christian story have to say about it? And where can we learn from it, even in the midst of its darkness? So all of that to say, there we are. I'm going to give you a little disclaimer, and then I'm going to pray. Um, My first disclaimer is that um, dystopian fiction and film very often contain violence in it. And especially with The Hunger Games and with Divergent for this week, one of the things that's most disturbing about these two series of books and films, these two franchises, how many of you have seen, um, first of all, how many of you have seen or read Divergent? A handful of people, yeah, all in the front row. thank you. How many of you have seen or read The Hunger Games? More people, yeah, they're more popular. If you like the Hunger Games, you would probably enjoy Divergent as well. Why this violence? It is disturbing, isn't it? And so we have to recognize that as we enter into it, there's something very wrong about it. Um, And it's the kind of wrong, it's like a train wreck happening, you can't avert your eyes. And that's intentional on the part of the authors. It's meant to get us to think about ourselves as a culture. But I give you that disclaimer in advance. We're talking about violence And in these young adult books, the violence is usually very often directed against the youth in the books, which is very disturbing. So I don't endorse that, obviously. We're going to see how these books can get beyond that. Um, The second thing is that I will be spoiling some of the story, but not all of the story. So that um, with Divergent, especially today, I'm going to have to share some of the secrets in order to talk about it in light of the Christian faith, but don't let that deter you from reading the books. And I don't recommend seeing the film. I'm going to show clips from the film, and tra- a trailer in a moment from the film. Don't go see the film. It's not as good as the books, and it's not out on DVD anyway. So um, take your time, spend the money on reading that first book in the series if you're at all interested in this. So um, the books are still worth reading, even though I might disclose some of the minor secrets along the way. I won't give you the big ending. How about that? But I'll give you some secrets along the way. Okay, so now, finally, and firstly, let's pray. Oh, so dear Lord God, we trust that you are in our midst, and we see you even in the world around us, in the different um, fixings and trappings of our culture, the books we read, the films we watch, the things we hear on TV, the things we hear on the news. You, Lord, are Lord over all of it. And so we ask now, continue to guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might pick and choose wisely, that we would chew the meat and spit out the bones. And yet even so, as we look at this one particular installment, (laughs) would you draw us, even through this secular work of fiction, would you draw us ever closer to you, ever closer to the knowledge of the great love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you, this is the trailer for Divergent, it's Fast and Furious, so hang on. you want to survive?
1: Divergent. March 21st. takes on sale now. It's the bottom
0: one, right? I believe really on this way everyone can just have a nap. It is the summertime after all. Um, Okay, so it's fast and furious. Can you tell too that it's geared toward teens? Do you see all those angst? They call it. It's a it's a shot where they cut off the forehead of the main character, and that's so you can get right in your mind. And that's one of the things about the film that's a little bit distasteful to me. The film is not nearly as good an action film as the book is an action book. So if you can believe that, how could you take a fast-moving fast page-turner, action-packed, and turn it into something much slower and longer? Well, they managed to do that with the film, which is one of the reasons why I recommend reading the book over seeing the film. Well there you have it, here's another one. Over and over again. So if, a, if we were to say that a dystopia, in contrast to a utopia, a utopia is a wonderful world, a world made magical by human effort, by the goodness of humanity, a world built on that can do spirit, that sense of humanism. We can build together the perfect society. Well, the opposite of that is this dystopia. And in dystopian fiction and film, what you find is that usually there are some characters who believe that they actually have succeeded in creating a utopia, and then there are others who realize, no, this is actually an illusion. It appears to be good, but it's really only good for a very few members of the society. So dystopias are very often futuristic controlled and controlling societies that are walled off, but only just barely from a seething chaos underneath. And within Divergent in particular, we could say that this dystopian world of Divergent is found in post-apocalyptic Chicago, which is fenced off. Did you see the fence in that second trailer? It's fenced off and its population is rigidly divided into five factions that strive to attain idealized virtues as a way to maintain peace. So essentially in this world that Veronica Roth has created there has been in the past a great war that devastated the landscape. And out of the out of the embers of that war the new society that was created desired to eradicate violence, desired to no longer have that same kind of conflict, to do anything, whatever it took, to um, prevent a similar conflict from happening in the future. And they believed in this new society building after the war, post-war. They believed that the way to do that would be to reinforce these idealized virtues, these five virtues. And each person in the faction, in their own faction, believes with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, that if they just continue to promote the number one virtue within their faction, if they strive for that virtue with all of their strength, with all of their being, then they can maintain the peace of the world, Um, which sounds very hopeful. And yeah, what we see is that they're not succeeding. They're failing at this. And how are they going to succeed? How is violence stamped out from our society? How is violence stamped out from our own hearts? And that's the question, one of the questions that the author, Veronica Roth, is, is, um, is asking us. And so these factions are divided. They're very rigidly divided. And she picks these five virtues. Each virtue is thought to prevent conflict and to prevent war. So does anybody remember what, if you've read it or seen it, what are the five factions? Anybody? There are two that begin with A. Amity, is that what I heard? Say it again. Say it there amity. amity amity abnegation, abnegation. candor what else dauntless and I'm, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this with my no one else knows it's okay just shout it out
1: <laughs>
0: what's the other one erudite. erudite that's right good job all right she's got them down so the five factions abnegation amity candor dauntless and erudite All these fancy words, but essentially to say the five virtues that are promoted by each one of these factions are individually um, for abnegation, self-sacrifice, and selflessness. Beautiful, right? For um, erudite, it's knowledge. Knowledge prevents us from becoming violent. Um, For candor, their virtue is honesty. If we would all just stop lying, then there would be no conflict. Honesty is what they promote. And amity, amity seeks kindness friendship, that rosy-cheeked gladness that can prevent anger from rooting in our hearts. So those five virtues are extolled by these factions. And what happens is that every single member of this society at age 16 is forced to choose which faction they will end up in for the rest of their life. They might have been born into one faction, but then they have a point where they're tested for their aptitude for the five different factions and they then will choose a different faction or the same faction based on the results of their test. So that is, of course, where we find the main character. The main character is the eve of her 16th birthday. She has grown up within the faction of abnegation, and she then must choose a new faction or the same faction. And this this is something that um, is important for us today because we also have the same question. I mean, how many of us had have, have had to pick which sorority to rush for, or which college to go to, or even if you're still in high school, what will be your extracurricular activity, that one that will guarantee you entrance to the college of your choice? And as adults, we continue to ask this. What club will I belong to? Where will my husband become a partner? And it's always the question. I love this old show. If you're in my era, you'll remember that the the show Cheers. Where is the place where everyone knows my name? Right? And that's what these factions do. They provide that camaraderie, that sense of belonging, that sense of belonging surrounding a particular identity. And so what we find is that Tris rebels against her faction of birth, and she is a rebel, which is kind of cool. We see that in a lot of the heroes in dystopian fiction and film. They're rebels against the controlling society. This is a very controlling society. If you're dauntless, everything you have to do has to be courageous. You dress in black. You're really cool. You wear tattoos. All you eat is chocolate cake. I mean, they're so streamlined and so extreme and then very controlled in their extremity. And that's one of the senses of oppression that you get in this world is that they're oppressed into this super-ultra-controlled society, super-ultra-controlled action and then even thoughts. And Tris rebels against the selflessness <coughs> of her family. She was born into abnegation and she continually recognizes that she's not nearly selfless enough to be in abnegation even though she has some aptitude for it. And so she rebels, very courageously she rebels against the system by choosing a new faction. She goes from the most meek and mild faction to the most dangerous, the most scary faction. She chooses, anybody want to tell us what she chooses? She chooses dauntless. She goes for um, the most courageous faction. And these kids, she's watched them all her life. The way they get to school is that they ride on a train all the way up to the high school and then they jump off the train and roll and run into class. She just thinks it's the coolest thing ever. You know, there's a lot of this sense of coolness. She wants to be cool. She wants to be courageous. And so, for the, initi- for the very first moment in this faction, this is what they're required to do. They're required to enter their new headquarters by jumping off a seven story building. Mm-hmm. The tattooing and the knife throwing and jumping, and she had a whole different <laughs> life from here on out. But you see, she changes her name. She changes her sense of identity because she felt as though she could not fit in within that other world. Um, so one other things that you, one of the things that you see again with dystopia, all is not right in the world, and you see this in particular in her faction of choice. That something has gone horribly wrong, and that something is that the violence is seeping back in. Dauntless is meant to be like the police force for this policed society, and they have become not just um, disciplined, but also now cruel and unwavering in what they require of their initiates and what they require of others. And you see it in one clip in particular, her friend has been training, they've all been training, and rather than being allowed to tap out when they've had too much, the new leaders of this faction require them to keep going keep going to the point of unconsciousness um, more than their bodies can handle. And so um, previously to be able to say I've had enough was seen as being a point of courage to know your limitation. And now in this new morphing of the society, there is no giving up. You have to press yourself to the point of unconsciousness, to the point even of death. And so um, Beatrice's friend, Christina, taps out in the midst of training and this is what um, their leader does in response.
1: Yeah.
0: Become factionless. And being factionless in this society is a terrible state. Essentially, it's um, setting yourself up for being a se- basically homeless. You would not have a place to live. Um, you would not have food for sure. You're basically out of society in that world. And so you see this savagery coming into play. You see the violence in the way um, the youth are treated in this setting, in the way that everyone is treated. And so what will counteract the violence? And that's a question I'm going to answer in just a minute to see what is Veronica Roth's answer, what is the author's answer, and how does her answer to this counteracting of this violence, how does that have anything to do with Jesus Christ and the Christian story? Hang in there. Like Christina, hang on there, we're getting there. But I'd like to first, before I go there, I'd like to invite a a friend who has been helpful in getting this started. Um, Mabry Sansbury was, yeah, you can come on up. Sorry, I already introduced you. I didn't ask your name. Do you want to tell us your name? Okay, Mabry (laughs) Mabry, Sansbury. Mabry and I talk about sometimes about the books that we're reading, and she gives me good recommendations, and I give her... Actually, it's usually that she gives me good recommendations. But um, we both read these books, and we we're both interested in them. And and it was really she inspired me to to go ahead and do this class because it's something interesting, not just for youth and for teens, but also for us today. So come on over to the podium. You can you can hide behind the podium. Good. So I'm going to ask you one of the things. Um, I want to know what is it that you like about Divergent?
1: Um, well.
0: It should be on. You can hold it a little closer to your mouth. Yeah, yeah.
1: Perfect. Um, I really liked um, the ideas behind the society and the way that Veronica Roth kind of shaped it with her imagination. And that's that was kind of fascinating.
0: She creates this whole world. It's really I mean it's kinda scary to look inside someone's head and see what kind of world they would create if they had to create a world. But it's very it's fascinating. You get drawn into the world pretty easily. Um, Thank you. Well, so one thing too, and this is something we talked about last night, uh, last week, not last night, sorry, last week, was that we were talking about how dystopian fiction in film very often has this quality of being prophetic. And I likened it to, um, remember in the Prophets, how Jonah is told to go to Nineveh by the Lord and to tell the people of Nineveh to repent and turn from their ways. Otherwise dot, 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 will happen to them. And essentially one of the things that dystopian fiction in film does is that it's almost, it has this prophetic function for us today. It's as though a time traveler from the future, say it was Veronica Roth, say this future she dreamt up really did exist. It's as though she's coming back to us today, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, and saying to us, if we don't change the way we live, we could end up like this. If we don't change the way, fill in the blank, we could end up like this. So I've asked Mabry to look at that. What do you think might be one of Veronica Ross' prophetic messages for us today? Um, I think that she was
1: telling us to change the way that we treat people and the way that we view our differences. The factions only start fighting because they can't see any other faction as good except for themselves. Even though the factions are only separated by the character trait that they have most, they view everyone else as bad. They're also afraid of Divergence, who possess the, more than one of the qualities looked for in the aptitude test. They haven't done anything wrong, and might not ever, but they are seen it as dangerous nonetheless. The purpose of Divergence is explained in the second and last book, but I don't really want to ruin it for you. So <laughs> Suffice to say, they're good, but people hate them because Divergence are considered better than everyone else. Soon, no one was really quite sure why they hated them anymore. It's true some of them were probably bad but it, people took it out on every single one of them. Sound familiar? It's sort of like how Muslims were treated after 9-11. Even though we see some of this, we are we have a chance to change it. I think that she was warning us
0: against this prejudice. Thank you. I think you're right. I think yes. she is warning us against that, against that prejudice that would cause us to look at someone, some one group of people, to recognize them by a certain trait and then to say, um, we have to do away with one of them. And there's actually, in her book, war breaks out against one of the factions. One faction starts to persecute one of the other factions and tries to completely eradicate them, um, not just in the kind of prejudice that we see exhibited in our society, You know, especially right after 9-11. My brother-in-law is Middle Eastern in background, and my sister looks like me, and their baby, their first child, who is now 13, he was blonde, 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 and my brother-in-law loves to wear beards, and he has this dark, dark hair, dark eyes, and he realized, I better shave my beard. I better wear, like, no funny clothes on the subway, because right after 9-11, he said, I don't want people to think I've kidnapped my own son. It was a little, was a little bit bad in, in New York City. He had to say, no, really, I'm an American. I know I might not look like it, but I'm an American. Um, so it, there is that quality there. I think it's also in high school. Do you experience it in school at all, if you're in high school, where it's this group and that group. You can only be a part of one group. You can't be a soccer player and a theater kid. You can only do one thing, and you sort of are streamlined into that one thing, and you set yourself off away from other people. Thank you, Mabry. So she's saying, let's not be like that. Let's try to... um, to have more ambiguity in the way we view people and in the way we allow ourselves to be. One of the other senses of ambiguity, and I think this is perhaps part of her prophetic message to us as parents, and I do think these books are very helpful for adults in terms of understanding our own sense of identity, Um, but also as parents, what you would see, abnegation is the faction that the girl grows up in, that Beatrice grows up in, and abnegation, well, first of all, Veronica Roth is a Christian. So that's the big secret. She says in her first book, she gives thanks to God and his son Jesus. Isn't that amazing? She does that in the back of the book. She was 21 when that first book was published. She's a young girl when it was published. And you see in Abnegation, she is very clearly trying to allude to the church and to the Christian faith. Abnegation's initiation ceremony involves a washing of feet, their whole sense of identity, circled around this sense of selflessness. They have these rituals where they serve each other at the dinner table. They they do a lot of community service. They um, are always looking out for the other in their midst and outside their midst. And that's one of the reasons why the control and the government of this society was entrusted to them. But all along in the book, she says, I can't be a part of this faction going forward because I'm not selfless enough. I'm too selfish. I don't fit in around here. She feels like she could not make that faction her home because she's not so controlled in her behavior, so controlled in her impulses. She knows her own sin. Her first impulse is not to help the person in need. She recognizes that, and that's what makes her say, well, if I can't do that, then I can't be a part of this faction at all. So I think there is... In Veronica Roth's story, I think there's a cautionary word for us in the church as we raise our children. And, you know, again, it's hard for me to say this without children of my own, but I see it with my nieces and nephews. I've seen it with other children that I've gotten to take care of, that um, especially when I was taking care of these two-year-olds or three-year-olds, whether it was nanny or in preschool, you could only only uniformly um, mandate certain things, right? I would say, we're having lunch, and this is what was for lunch. And the two-year-old would refuse. And then I would say, well, what cup would you like to use, the pink cup or the blue cup? And it was that level of choice that made her say, okay, well, I, I, you know, I would smooth over, we don't have a choice about it being macaroni and cheese. She didn't like macaroni and cheese for some reason. But it was, is it gonna be the pink cup or the blue cup? And in that that some level of freedom, that measure of freedom to choose, she felt more um, willing to submit to the choice that she couldn't make. Um, And I think that's one of the things, especially as our children grow up, as they grow into adults, one of the factors, one of the defining characteristics of being an adult is that you make choices on your own. You're required to make big decisions at times. And you cannot just make the decision out of obedience to one other person or always, even if we would like it to be um, this way, we can't always obey our families. When it comes down to, What college will you go to? What profession will you go into? As much as our Father might want us to do one thing, um, if it doesn't fit our aptitude or our um, inclination or our desires, we'll be miserable, won't we? So it's something as parents for us to look at when we're trying to raise our children as Christians. We cannot control every aspect of their lives. We dare not control every aspect of their lives We need to pick and choose and set up the standard, the way in which they are to go, that even that way of self-sacrifice, looking to the cross, and then um, in that, we give them freedom in other things, freedom in the areas that are not as important. We pick the most important, we set it up as a standard, and then we get out of the way. And even in following the standard, we're able what works so much better is if we're able to be honest about the ways in which we fail to meet the standard ourselves that's one of the things in her community growing up no one ever said to her yeah i don't really feel like doing this any either but it's what's best no one ever admitted that they also were selfish in that and so that's something that we can model for our children as adults Okay, so enough of the polemic, enough of the prophetic word that Veronica Roth might have for us. What within Veronica Roth's world is the solution to the violence in the world and the violence even in the human heart? One of the things that Veronica Roth recognizes, and she says this in a quote of hers during an interview, she recognizes, and this is something that her main character recognizes, she realizes that changing ideals, or setting up a new ideal, or striving with all your strength toward an ideal is a poor solution to the collective and individual human failure to live up to the ideal. Is the solution in switching ideals? Is the solution in trying harder? No. She says, the faction system reflects my beliefs about human nature, that we can make even something as well-intentioned as virtue into an idol, or an evil thing, and that virtue as an end unto itself is worthless to us. And she said, I did spend a large portion of my adolescence trying to be as good as possible so that I could prove my worth to the people around me, to myself, to God, to everyone. And it's only now that I'm a little older that I realize that I'm unable to be truly good and that it's my reasons for striving after virtue that need adjustment more than my behavior. And she recognizes that in Divergent, everyone in this society that believes that virtue is the end and the means to the end. um, That by striving, by putting forward the law, then we can also achieve the law. And that's one of the things that scripture tells us. The law does not produce what it requires. By telling ourselves again and again, this is what we're supposed to do, does not necessarily mean that we will then do it. What is the solution in Veronica Roth's world? Well, ultimately, Tris, the main character in her changed name, she finds she knows her own weakness. She says she's not selfless enough. She's not merciful. She's not forgiving. She is not joyfully giving of herself for others. And yet, what you see throughout the big picture of the story is that she has received love very well, that kind of self-sacrificial love that her parents had for her, that she experienced in her faction growing up in that sort of pseudo-Christian community. She knew what it meant when someone else gave ultimately for her, out of love for her, and she has received that love. And so what she finds, despite herself, even when she acknowledges her own weakness and her own poverty of self, she recognizes that, um, that um, what happens is she gives. We will find her. We see her as you read the book, as you watch the movie. She gives with a knee-jerk reaction. Her knee-jerk reaction is to give sacrificially um, of herself to the uttermost. And she does it, if you were to stick it out through all three books, she does it again and again and again. All the way through, even to the end, she gives sacrificially. She doesn't give in a measured fashion this for that as though she's weighing on a scale. There's another character who weighs on a scale his gift. He saves her life at one point, and the only reason why he saves her life is because she has once saved his life, and he needed to be done with it. He needed to no longer owe her. He needed for the scales to no longer be um, uneven so that they could be evened out, and then he walks out of her life, and she never sees him again. And so what Veronica Roth does is she puts up this, um, this foil of Peter and Triss. Peter um, gives tit for tat like a seesaw up and down in order to equalize. But Triss gives unreservedly, inadvisedly. She gives generously, and it is because she has received much. She who has received much gives much. And that's something that we see in scripture as well, isn't it? We see it in Jesus Christ himself, in the way that God has sent him to be an atoning sacrifice for us. And it says there in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For, though one, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That death on our behalf, Jesus Christ taking our place, giving of himself, sacrificing himself for us, um, this for that, him for us. In that giving of himself, as we receive all that God has for us in Jesus Christ, as we receive his death for us, the forgiveness, the healing, the eternal life that we have through faith in his name, we then are transformed, even like we see Veronica Roth having Tris transformed. We're transformed into being able, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to give unreservedly of ourselves as a knee-jerk reaction. We find ourselves even being able, by the grace of God, after receiving all that God has for us through Jesus Christ, we find ourselves then able, like Tris, to turn around and give, give beyond even our own resources. Um, And this is what Paul says later on in um, 2 Corinthians. He says, The love of Christ controls us. One has died for all. Jesus has died for all. Therefore, all have died. In that place where we receive what Jesus has done for us, it's as though we are obliterated. The I within me is obliterated. That self that rears its ugly head, that self that wants its own way, is crossed out, just like we make the cross at times, some of us. That cross, that I is crossed out, um, and then the love of Christ controls us despite ourselves, um, outside of our own power and our own strength. Jesus died so that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for our sake and was raised. And that living out of our life of faith, that living out of that selflessness that we cannot produce in and of ourselves, that we who have received much are then turning around and giving much. And you see this. I commend it to you. This is the reason why I've talked about it, because you see it in this story. And you see it in this one last clip that I'm going to show you. She has been in training. There's a boy who's sort of sad and sorry and not as good at throwing knives as everyone else. Yes, it's a knife throwing scene. And the same mean guy who threw the girl in the chasm says to this boy, you need to go pick up all your knives. All the other kids are still throwing knives at the targets. And he says, but st- aren't they going to stop? And he says, no, go get your knives. And so he's going into the light of fire and she objects. She says, that's a fear. You can't do that. She rebels against this violence and this oppression. And he says, all right, you go stand at the target. And he has his assistant throw knives around her. And thank goodness he's a very good Nice, but this is what
1: happens. Once your bravery's dead. You're right? You cut me. I meant to. You meant to? I think he was going to let you off without a scratch. So, be standing there if I hadn't at you. She'll so, we're supposed to thank you?
0: You're supposed to be smart. If I wanted to hurt you, I would have. She had stood there, yeah, they focused on the honesty, like, oh, with the tension. But she has withstood the knife throwing. She has stepped in the place of this unfortunate boy. And she does it again and again and again. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a Christ-like thing. Jesus Christ himself has thrown himself in front of the oncoming train of the judgment that was headed our way. He has pushed us out of the way. And so we too as Christians have a new lease on life. We are a new creation so for that we can say, thanks be to God. I think we have one minute for, well, I think we have time for one question, maybe. The rest of you, if you feel like you need to. Go. Well, I guess
1: I'd pick up from the last two sermons where we don't recognize, like St. Paul, that we are the chief of sinners, and that there is no hope in us except in Christ, If we... We, we do live in a dystopia. All we can create is right. dystopias, and the only utopia is yet to come,
0: the new kingdom. That's right. And that's one and of the which things... Which has nothing to do with our work. Right. And that's one of the things where these worldly utopias try to create it in human strength. There is a utopia headed um, down our horizon. It is the city of God waiting for us that will descend from heaven like that. with um, pearly, The pearly gates... Um, that uh, that John talks about, that he sees in the Revelation. Any other thoughts? Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.